Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we're rewinding back to August the 21st, 2013, episode 1191. Holy crap, I just found every out everything isn't super part two. Today's uh, new intro time will be very, very short, because I said pretty much everything I had to say about this one yesterday. I'll just kind of prep you mentally for what you're going to hear today. Today we're going to dig a lot into solutions and planning. So yesterday we kind of Let's settle down, and today we're kind of like, and let's also accept the reality of the fact that things can go really wrong, and let's take away the fear not by burying it and hiding it, but by putting a plan in place to either prevent these things from happening or to mitigate the circumstances should they occur. The number one way to keep calm, Number one way to keep calm in a disaster, any kind of emergency situation, is to know what you're going to do about it. To have pre-drilled it. This is how this is how you wonder how troops don't just freak out in combat. You know, the first time that they're shot at. And you know, some do. It's not a hundred percent solution, but in general, most most of our military members, when they're shot at, they execute the training that they have been taught to. And it's because they realize at that point, as bad as it is, this is the plan. And that my best chance to come out the other end of this alive is to follow this plan. And the very fact that the plan is there is what enables that person to do what seems completely illogical, to charge into a fight. When people are trying to kill you. And if it can help a soldier who's 18 years old get through that, then it can help you get through something as mundane as losing your job or having a car wreck and being afraid that your freaking insurance is going to go up or anything else like that or much bigger problems. Because we are going to talk about some bigger problems today, but the good news is we're going to talk about well thought out, rational ways to plan for and deal with them should they occur. And we will even talk about some things that there is no simple answer to. There is no definitive, if you do this, you'll be fine. There are some things we cannot just fix. But even those, we can do things to mitigate them. With that, here we go, back to August 21st, 2013, episode 1191. Holy crap, I just found out everything isn't super part two and remember while these episodes are commercial free you can always help support the show and the work we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com all right with that wrapped up i want to get back into the uh, main topic today a lot of times i do shows in a series and it's really not that vital that you go listen to part one or part two or whatever if i'm on part three this is a part one or two series and this show really if you missed yesterday's Or somebody sent you this and said you should listen to it, go to the survivalpodcast.com and look up episode 1190 and listen to it first. Um, the first 20 minutes of that really talks about the psychology of getting into this holy crap, I, I just found out everything is in super mode and how to pull yourself out of it. 
And it's really important. You could, I could put any of the steps. I could take yesterday's steps and put them today and today's steps and put them yesterday, and that wouldn't really matter. But without that frame of reference, it's hard to really appreciate how valuable the information I'm giving you is today and how nuts and bolts it really is and how it can you know, prevent you from making expensive mistakes, life-altering mistakes, and, and panic-driven mistakes, and fear-driven mistakes. And I'm not going to go through it all. In fact, I'm going to take a different approach to it today before I get into steps uh, with continuing on with that thought. There's one thing that you need to never be doing in your life unless it's instinctive and life-saving for the moment, and that is making decisions based on fear. What I mean by that, if you're out in the middle of the road and you see a car careening down on you, it's about to just knock you senseless and kill you and run you over, Fear, long before you have the logical thought press of the car is approaching at 65 miles an hour, and if I don't move in the next quarter second, I'll probably get hit. And, and you're not, it's going to be instinctive, and you, you, you react with fear. And you move, and the car goes whizzing by, and you're still alive, and you live to fight another day. That's good fear. Okay, When you are sitting and you have plenty of time to logically and methodically plan your next action, and you take that action primarily driven by fear, it's almost always the wrong decision. You might get lucky. I don't know. You might be afraid of something that drives you in the right direction. But there's, if you would make the same decision, doing it logically will, will come to the same place if it's the right decision to make. It's so important that we shelve our fear and we use it as a reactionary means when it's necessary to enact training or save our lives. So I talked about firearms training. If you're in a situation where some guy starts shooting up a room, you're going to be running on a lot of things, but one will be fear. And hopefully it's a guided, controlled fear that goes along with your own training and enables you to save lives and stop the threat. That's the place for fear. It's that type of a scenario where the action must come now And in the fear must be controlled and guided along with training and logic. And everywhere else we need to just kind of put it up on the shelf and go, yeah, there's a lot of things out there to be afraid of. There's a lot of things that concern me that I have fear of. But I want to focus in my life on my circle of influence, the things that I actually control. So I might have a fear that the United States economy will eventually implode. In fact, I don't just have a fear of that. I have a, I'm speaking personally now, a full-on, full-fledged belief that mathematically this is certain. When and exactly what it'll look like and what the economic shifts it creates will be, I don't know. But I not only have a fear of that, I have an expectation of that. But, seriously, what can I do to prevent that? There, there's nothing I can do to prevent that. I can, I can get up and start screaming about being fiscally responsible and all the evils of the Federal Reserve and why our economy, and I, and I do it just so people know, but it's not going to change it. We had a saying in the Army, that's above my pay grade. That's way above everybody's pay grade in society. There's, there's, it wouldn't matter right now if 90% of Americans snap to the concept that we're economically being unsustainable and demanded our politicians to fix it. The solution they would enact still wouldn't fix it. So you can't fix it. It must play itself out at this point. It was too far down the line. So I can't sit around being afraid of that. I have to focus on, well, what can I do in my life to compensate for the fact that something in that world is going to happen? So the fear has to be shelved. 
if I ever kind of like wander off the path of, of common sense again, then maybe I need to take the fear down and go, hey, you remember this? Oh, oh yeah, okay. That's why I've got to live my life with common sense. That's right. That's stuff over there. And then put it back up on the shelf and just get back on the path. So I want you to be thinking that way as we, as we move forward today. Okay, so yesterday I talked about security. And basically, the, the biggest advice that I gave you was increasing your situational awareness. And I gave you episode 370 of the Survival Podcast to listen to, to learn about situational awareness and normalcy bias as homework. And you can do that next week or so. If you listen to all the episodes that have been recommended along with this series, I mean, it'll be like a college education in like one week's time on preparedness. It, it really will. Uh, but with that, I also talked about basically performing an am I being stupid audit in your own life. Um, you know, do you lock your doors when you come home? Well, no. Well, why not? Well, no one's going to do anything. That's normalcy bias. That's normalcy bias. No one will do anything. Well, no one's ever done anything on my street before. Doesn't mean they won't do it tomorrow. If I was a criminal and I was looking to break into a house, steal, murder, rape, abduct, whatever, whatever criminals want to do, Do you think I would go to a place where people expect it? Or do you think I would go to like a place where everybody's like, nothing like that ever happens here? You know, there are stupid criminals. They've even made a show called Stupid Criminals. And, and there's some really dumb ones. But most of them aren't that stupid, or they would be in jail or dead already. They stay alive and they're successful because they have a little bit of intelligence going on. And that's how they think. I'm going to go to a place... It seems like a lily-white, yuppie neighborhood where everybody's probably afraid of guns. If they do have a dog, it's some little yippy-yappy dog. I can kick it in the head and kill it. People don't lock their doors. Kids are running around the streets not paying attention to nothing. If I do break in, the kid's probably playing Call of Duty and won't even notice it while I beat the hell out of his mother. In the, in the, it, it, it sounds graphic. I'm trying to remember the fear that's on the shelf. I'm trying to put you in touch with a little bit here. This is how these people think. There are people that live within several miles of you, no matter where you are in the world, that think this way. Fear of their fellow man, not letting them get away with it. Fear of incarceration, fear of law enforcement, and just a good general fear that someone will find out what a piece of crap I am, hold most of them in check most of the time. It's what I call my 10% scumbag theory. That roughly 10% of people are scum. But only like 1% or 2% or 3% generally will act on that scum instinct because of fear. Okay, There's about another 10%, a full 20% of society that have the potential to be scum. That if there's enough people being scum around them where it becomes socially acceptable, they'll be scum. And they might not be as vehement scum, but they'll do it. Now, if I'm putting you off right now, if you were asked to listen to this series... Understand there's a lot of factual information that I've given over five and a half years that backs this up. And I'm sorry I'm putting you off. But what we're continuing with today is security for yourself, your children, your family, your neighborhood. And shoring that up. Because it's one of your primary survival needs. And I'll tell you what, this is the truth about security. Security is the survival need you can do without for the least amount of time at the time that you need it. If you need water and you don't have it, you can 
Make it about three days as a general rule. Depends on where you're at and all. But if you need water and you don't have it, you're not going to die this second. You're going to begin a process of dehydration and illness and maybe heat stroke. Okay? Your body loses the ability to, to actually process a lot of its, of its processes and digest food and things like that. But it's, it's something that happens over time. Okay? If I, if I cut your air supply off, if I put my hand over your mouth and nose and don't let you breathe, If you don't panic, you've probably got about three minutes to figure out how the hell to get me off of you. But if I put my hand over your mouth and nose, I'm putting a knife into your back and your security's let down for that one-tenth of one second, you're dead. Security is the most important survival need you have because when it fails at the wrong time, you die. Not in a little bit, now. The reason that it gets shelved as being the least important in the minds of most people is because you can live your entire life, and if you're lucky, never need security. And the security that did protect you, you've never really noticed. You know, that, that, that vehement scum, that 10% of the population that is that way, they didn't act because security is provided for you by law enforcement and by your neighbor. The neighbor you just wave to, you think, you know, I, yeah, it's just a normal random guy. You know, you don't know, but he might be the guy that if somebody tried to break in your house would come over and protect you. And you're not sure if he's the guy that would break in or the guy who would protect you, but the scumbag doesn't know that either. And that security of a functioning society and an effective law enforcement organization uh, group uh, working together holds back that scum so that you don't provide your own security. And you get away with it. Well... Day to day, you got that two to three percent of scum that are just looking for the opportunity. That's why we do the "Am I being stupid?" audit, because they're pretty good at picking out that guy's being stupid. That guy's being stupid. Goes to work the same way every day, and I've noticed that every Friday he stops at the bank. Yep. Then he goes over there and buys a burger with cash. You think that's not stupid? Yeah, it is. It's predictable, it's patternable, and it's connected to money. Am I being stupid audit? Please perform one. That doesn't mean to be paranoid. It just means if you do the same thing every time at a time that might attract a criminal element, it's probably dumb. You should probably change it up once in a while. Go somewhere else. Get direct deposit. Why are you going to the bank after work on Friday to cash a check? We think about these things. Just saying. So, the reason the guy can do that, though, is there's police driving around, there's other people around, everything is in a basic situation where the scum realize I have to wait for a better opportunity than this. He's provided me with one, but is this good enough yet? Generally speaking, that's not a good enough opportunity. Now, if, he, if the guy that's doing this leaves work every Friday and goes to the bank, and when a guy sees him go to the bank instead of cashing a check... He's putting in a great big wad of bills in one of those little like uh, pencil bag style bags, bank bags, into the thing for a large cash deposit. Well, that risk-reward ratio has changed, and that am I being stupid quotient goes up. But what happens, my friends, when the security that you take for granted is dissolved because there's a storm? And all of the police officers are trying to pull people out from underneath rubble. And you're across the town a little ways where things are really not that bad. But the criminal element knows that law enforcement, first responders, are not available. 
that facade of security around you has gone down. Okay? That's another part of the MI being stupid audit. That unlocked door you may get away with for 20 years, but there may be a 20-second period of time where it can cost you your life or worse, and there are things that can happen to a person worse than dying because that security apparatus failed because you don't get to choose when it fails. You don't get to choose your disaster. You don't get to choose how you're affected. So some other things that I do suggest that you do. Number one is I suggest that you make your home a place that you know better than anybody would ever break into, and you make sure there are methods of interrupting uh, attempted attacks available throughout the house. One of the things I mean by that would be like what we do. We have um, pepper spray in the form of Cold Steel Inferno. There's a lot of good pepper sprays. Someone's going to email me again every time I talk about this. I get this guy and he could get sprayed in the face. Whatever. He's not breaking in your house. Okay. And we have Velcro on it. And we have it like under windowsills. And we have it under tables. And we have it in just various places. This is something where a firearm is not appropriate. I can't have firearms Velcroed underneath windowsills. It's not safe. You don't know who's going to find it. If somebody fights pepper spray and sprays himself, you know, they have a bad day, but they're going to live. You know, if, we, if, the, if a kid finds it and sprays another kid with it, they're, they're going to live. But if a kid shoots another kid, they're not. So guns, I can't distribute like this. Knives, it's not smart to distribute like this. The most effective thing I've found to distribute like this is pepper spray. If someone breaks into this house and my wife's not able to shoot them and begins to pursue her through this house, there are so many opportunities that I guarantee you they're going to end up with a face full of that crap. And that's going to give her another opportunity to survive. If I happen to be out on property when that happens and I hear something going on, it's going to give me more time to get in and end the threat. And I'll leave it at that. But that is a very low-cost, simple way that you can make sure. Now, I recommend Cold Steel Inferno. I recommend the ones that are at least uh, like uh, aerosol can size and up. And I do recommend Velcroing them into places and knowing where they are and occasionally walking through your house and reminding yourself where they are. You won't remember... You won't remember unless you program your mind to remember this. Now, if you think this is being paranoid, it's not. If you never use it, it's just there. If you ever need it, it can save your life. Next, I do recommend a firearm and firearms training. Um, I think that it makes sense to have an accessible shotgun as your primary home defense weapon. I also think it makes a lot of sense to have handguns. <gasps> evil handguns, yes. Evil handguns, yes. I'll tell you why. There could be situations during a breakdown where someone comes to your front door and they may or may not pose a threat and you're willing to answer the door. Answering the door holding a freaking, you know, tactical shotgun may not be very practical. That handgun can be concealed. That's one reason I like handguns. Two, in some close corridor situations, they definitely have an advantage over a, a shotgun as far as somebody being able to reach, grab the barrel and take it away from you and beat you to death or shoot you with it. But I definitely recommend training to go along with the firearms. But a decent handgun, a decent shotgun, and some training can all be put together for about 600 bucks. I think the Am I Being Stupid audit, the uh, the Velcroed uh, pepper spray, and the you know tightening up of everything that you do in your procedures comes before that because you can do all that very very inexpensively uh, or for nothing. And I really, really recommend training as well. Situational awareness, I cannot recommend enough that you work on that. I can give you some exercises that couples can do together that's really kind of fun. Next time you and your spouse or you and your kids or anybody are going anywhere in a car together, agree that you're going to look for things along the way. 
things that you normally would notice. And when you get where you're going, discuss what you noticed and see if the other party noticed those things too, or if not. And especially on places that you drive all the time and you're sure you know everything that's there. Look for something you never noticed before. This will just start to program your mind in the right direction. By the way, the cost of that is ding, 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 zero dollars. And you're now working on your situational awareness. You will begin to do this more often. There's also some really low-tech things you can do. Um, if you're in a situation where you're kind of on a little bit of a heightened awareness, uh, that there might be some threats of burglary or something like that in your home, and you might come home and find that someone's actually gotten into your house and picked your locks and gotten in without breaking in. It doesn't look obvious. You know, a little piece of tape on your door before you leave will let you know if anybody's opened that door. That's pretty simple. Front and back door you could do that with. Um, I do want you to understand there's no such thing as a pick-proof lock, and that lock picking is actually a skill that's very useful and quite easy to learn. The first time I tried to pick a lock, it took me exactly 15 minutes of playing with it to be able to successfully pick it uh, with with two little lock picks that I got from Brian Black, a rake and a tension wrench. So I had one with tension on it, the other one with a rake, 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 feel, feel, rake, 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 ah, this isn't going to work. There it goes. Schlage lock, good quality one, 15 minutes. Once I did it the first time, it took me about five minutes to do it the second time. After that, I sat and this was a lock going from my house into my garage that I decided to start practicing with. Once I had done it a couple times, I was able to do it in less than a minute over and over again, straight in. So a lock is no guarantee that someone won't get in, but it will slow them down. It will either make them make noise or make them take a longer period of time. I really can't recommend a dog highly enough. I don't care if it is a little yippy-yappy dog or a great big dog, and I don't think it has to be a, a dog that's trained to defend the home. It's just a dog that barks. Criminals don't like noise, and noise alerts you to a problem. And you will never be able to hear the way a dog can hear. You will never be able to smell the way a dog can smell. And in many ways, uh, though dogs don't see in color as far as we're told by science, they can see in ways that we cannot see. And they are a valuable part of your security. I don't care if they're an attack dog or not. I think that a dog trained to defend a home is a great asset. But I think even just the general purpose, everyday American mongrel is worth the price in vet bills, water, and food for the security that they provide for your home. So those are all some ways that you can improve your security along with what I said about security yesterday. I also recommend that everybody consider taking at least a little bit of martial arts training. I don't think you need to be a black belt. I don't think you need to roll around on the ground doing, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for years and years and years and study to be a master. I do think what you need is some basic common sense, uh, self-defense instincts basically developed that really happen with a lot with martial arts. I don't see boxing as a good thing for this. Boxing is a great sport. I've met boxers that can punch like you wouldn't believe. And, yeah, if somebody wants to get in a fight with them and they want to throw down and put up their dukes, yeah, they'll do great. Um, and I'm not saying some of the skills won't transfer if you're jumped or abducted or anything, but most people are not going to become proficient that way. But just knowing if I'm grabbed by the neck, what do I do? What is the first thing I should do? How should I contort my body to pr pr create an opportunity for myself so I'm not just an easy victim? I, I think that's extremely valuable and extremely important. And I, I think that in some instances, the person with a little bit of training that's not that great but just has an instinct now of what to do may be better off than some of the people that are well-trained 
Because a well-trained person is overconfident. And what makes a lot of people fight off an attacker is fear. The fear comes off the shelf, goes into overdrive, but it's put alongside with some level of channeling and control and some knowledge. And all of a sudden that person thinks, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And it ends up that they want to live more than the person attacking them wants whatever they want. And the next thing you know, there's a, there's a piece of a testicle on the floor or an eyeball pulled out. And if that's what it takes, man, if somebody's trying to harm you, take your children, harm you, take from your family, kill you, whatever. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. And that mindset is as important as the skill set that goes along with it. So security, I could do a whole series of shows on. Just want to get you framed in the right direction with security. Now let's move on to health and sanitation. Now, I have this guy that I went to high school with. And uh, I think he failed biology, and I think he got a D in chemistry. And he's a nice guy, but he's just not incredibly bright. And you may wonder where I'm going with this. I'll get there right away. So about a year and a half into this uh, survival podcasting I've been doing now for almost five, over five years, I get an email from, dude, found your show. It's awesome. And I'm a prepper, and I'm into this and that and this and that. And I'm like, well, we exchanged some emails over you know several months. And then one day I get this email. Man. Cheaper than dirt's running this awesome deal. I just bought this bag. Check out this bag. It's like a $650 um, hospital, you know, mobile medic hospital kit. And uh, they were on it. It was on sale for 500 bucks. It was a good deal, and it was a good kit. But I, I emailed him back. I said, "What are you going to do with that?" He goes, "Oh, I'll have it if anything goes wrong." And I'm like, "You failed biology, dude. You don't. You know, this guy has like no first aid training, no paramedic training, no. And he's got this this advanced equipment bag." I think it's uh it's really a big mistake because that money could have been better allocated because he's got a lot of gear now he just can't use. My belief is that the best thing you can do is to take some basic first aid course training and then something like I just had a guy named Kerry Davis on that does life-saving medical training. Uh, and I think those are the, the bare minimums. Sort of one advanced medical training class and to, and to go along with that maybe as prerequisite so to speak some of the you know red cross first aid stuff like that cpr training and, and have at least enough medical knowledge to know that there's a lot here though that can be done for free and i, I almost hesitate to tell you this first thing because if you're a person that could be called a hypochondriac even a little bit this can lead to bad things if you if you overthink what i'm about to tell you but i think there's enough value in it for everybody else that i'll do that and i'll say that if you're a hypochondriac it probably won't matter you're probably doing something like this anyway or we'll end up doing it keeping a health journal is a great idea remember the book that i've had you writing in since yesterday well now I want you to maybe get a different book. You little make a little spiral, one of them little mini ones that can fit in a pocket, you know, a hundred pages or so, and make it your health journal. And this is not so you can like keep track of everything you eat or anything like that. Just note how you feel on a daily basis. Or do you have an ache or a, a, a part of your body that's sore that's not usually sore? And, and did you do something that caused it, or you're not sure? Do you have a headache? Do you feel dehydrated? Do you feel tired when you shouldn't, whatever, do you feel great? And just every day, just note, I'm talking like three or four words, not even sentences each day about you, how you feel, maybe once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening. 
I actually for a while went to school and started studying natural health and was actually pursuing uh, a degree in naturopathic medicine and uh, decided it wasn't for me. But I learned a lot in, in the, about the year of study that I did for that. And that was one of the projects that we had. And what I've learned by that is if you're in touch with your body, you'll find problems before they become problems and you can take preemptive steps. And I think that that concept is one of the most important things Americans can be doing for themselves. And I think it also makes a lot of sense to start learning about herbal medications and start learning about the harms that pharmaceutical medications can do when misused. And understand that probably the majority of pharmaceutical medications out there today being used for maintenance purposes are being overused. The, the pharmaceutical injury, industry does not exist to save lives and make, make people well. It, may, it exists to make a profit by keeping sick people alive. And, and, and you can't really have this discussion on health and wellness without acknowledging that. Because your health and your wellness is something that's not just a crisis concern. It's a concern on a daily basis. And if you're strong and healthy at the beginning of a crisis, even if a lot of things go wrong, and even if your health declines during it from lack of food or poor sanitation or whatever, and you've done the best you can, but there's still things that bring it down, you're still more likely to come out the other end of it alive than if you go into it <clears throat> unhealthy. So just keeping a health journal. Two, if you're overweight, lose weight. I believe that since I started the show. But when I started the show, I was somewhere over 283 pounds. The time that I weighed myself at my heaviest, I was 283 pounds. I weighed myself yesterday, I'm 201 pounds. So I'm 82 pounds off of the heaviest weight I ever weighed myself at. And I can just about guarantee you I was a good 10 pounds heavier, maybe 15, close to 300 pounds when I started doing the show. I got that way through a lifestyle of eating out all the time, entertaining clients, and just generally getting to be lazy and eating modern foods. And in the first couple of years of doing the show, I probably shed a pound or two here and there, and I definitely got healthier and I got more active, but I was still a very heavy guy. And if you look at some of my early YouTube videos, you can see it. But I didn't come out and just say, you need to lose weight, because I didn't want to feel like a hypocrite going, well, dude, you need to lose weight. And uh, a very dangerous thing was going on in my life at that time with my weight. I could still go elk hunting. I could still climb mountains. I could still go out and run and play with my kid when he was younger back then. You know, I, I, we'd go for walks, and my wife, who was in far better shape than me in every way you could imagine, she'd be huffing and puffing. I'm let's go, let's go. And why is that dangerous? Because it lets you believe that you're in better shape than you are. And I have such a positive self-image that, like, the fat guy in the mirror didn't even matter to me. Nah, I don't care. That was actually a good thing because it led me to a lot of great things in life. But it was a bad thing for me with my health. All I can tell you is if you have this problem, I really think that there's two places you should look to consider changing your diet towards. One would be Weston A. Price, which is going to get pretty, pretty close to the second one. And the Weston A. Price Foundation and the dietary stuff there and the book by Weston A. Price on nutritional degeneration I think is an incredible resource. And the other place would be the paleo community. And paleo is the way that I did it. And I know a lot of people that have had great results with the Weston A. Price program and looking at the science behind it 
and, and how it works and the, the components of animal proteins and things that are very similar to paleo, I can scientifically see why, even though they eat some things I don't. Uh, they definitely, usually, if it is something I don't eat, there's usually some level of preparation around it, like oats get soaked, wheat gets fermented, or something like that, or sprouted first. And, uh, it, and I've seen so many people from those two lifestyles go into it and come out, you know, six, six months later only, and go, oh my God, this has saved my life. I've had people email me that say, I've been a type 2 diabetic for 10 years, I did this for six months, and my doctor says I don't need, you know, this oral insulin anymore. I've had people email me literally to the point where they were in tears because of the dramatic differences it's made in their lives. And not all of them were overweight. Some of them were just unhealthy. And I, I, all I can tell you is it doesn't cost much more money to eat well than it does to eat poorly, especially if you get creative. And it can actually cost less. Yeah, an organically grown or even just a healthily grown chicken It's not Purdue or Tyson, something that doesn't stink when you take it out of the package. Per pound costs more than chicken nuggets, but if you buy a whole chicken and learn to make three meals out of it, it ends up costing you less. I can't do, you know, maybe one day I should do a whole show just on cooking nutritionally well, affordably. I can't do that today. I'm just going to tell you, you need to start that journey. And if you're in good shape, like you can do pull-ups and push-ups and you, you, you're not overweight, if you're eating garbage food, you're still destroying your body. Folks, I may have been 283, 293, 300 pounds at one point. But guys, when I was 29 years old, I was 195 pounds, and I was ripped. And I was eating that way for quite a while already. It took a while for life to catch up with you, and it happens. And if you want to survive the apocalypse, first rule of thumb is you got to get there. And a lot of people are going to end up dead long before any disaster comes on because their heart's going to give out. So it's really important to me that I drive that piece of this health and sanitation home. A good first aid kit, on just on the things you can do to write down on your sheet under health and sanitation, put am I fat? And then answer it yes or no, truthfully. Oh, women, um, <laughs> if you look good and everybody tells you you look good, And you think you're fat, you're probably not fat. You need to change your answer right now on that piece of paper. Women, you have the most horrible self-images about weight. And let me tell you how to cure yourself of this problem. When you go to the market and, and, and you look at all those magazines that are there for your benefit when you check out, just start every one of those you look at. Just say to yourself, moron, stupid, idiot, nonsense, crap, as you look at each one of those. Liars, thieves. That's because that's who those people are, and there it's not the men of this world that have given you that image. It's that crap right there. Get that crap out of your life. If you live on a yo-yo diet program, if you're always like, and if you're always thinking negative thoughts about yourself, you're not going to be healthy. I needed to throw that in there. But a good first aid kit. So first aid kit there. Um, I do recommend that you consider adding. In case there is a serious grid-down crisis situation, um, some antibiotics, and you can do that by purchasing fish antibiotics. I'm not going to get deep into that, but um, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy have done enough research to say that the, that the pills are actually made in the same plant, and, and they're the exact same pills. Just one goes into one, one bottle, and one goes into another bottle. I'm going to recommend 
a book here that I think is worth the investment, and uh, that is uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's book. Uh, the book is uh, by uh, Joe and Amy Al Alton, uh, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. It's called the Doom and Boom Bloom Survival Medicine Handbook, and I will put a link to it on Amazon so that you can see it there. If you are a member of the Support Brigade, they have a very good discount program for you on that book, and I would recommend that you use that discount and go through your MSB. It is probably the best book that I know of that I can recommend for the concept of collapse medicine, not just emergency medicine. And the difference being emergency medicine is what you'd learn in Carrie Davis's course. I'll also put a link to where you can learn more about that. And what you would use a kit like Carrie Cells for, that immediate life-saving aid that's designed to get a person to the next level of care. Uh, that's designed to keep the person alive until the ambulance and the paramedics get there. So designed to keep the person alive in the car until you get them to an emergency room or, or what have you. Collapse medicine is when uh, help's not coming. Help, help is not coming anytime soon. You are now the highest level of care. And you may never want to be that, but someday you might be just that. That You might be the medic. You might be the doctor, even though you're not a doctor. You won't call yourself that if you don't want to get sued after the society's put back together or anything, but you might be called by others the doctor if you know what you're doing at all. As long as you know more than everybody around you, that could be you. Um, and you'll never know if that's going to happen until the day that it happens. And collapse medicine is about having everything that you need ready to go with the knowledge of how to use it, and I recommend that book is your resource for building that up. And, and that kind of wraps up health and wellness for us today. But I hope I've made an impact on you if, if you have any health problems that you shore those up. I'll also hear from people from time to time that tell me you have health problems that are genetic, inborn, innate, nothing can be done for, uh, can't be cured, only can be managed, and what do I do? Like type 1 diabetes. The only thing I can recommend is that you speak to your doctor, find an open-minded doctor, and have you know a, a long-term supply of your medication. Uh, that can be done with insulin, far longer than I ever thought it could be. And if you talk to a doctor that tells you it can't, find a new doctor. And if you have any type of maintenance medication and you'd like to have a 90-day supply and your doctor says no, and this is medication that actually keeps you alive, then find a new doctor. Because that's the only answer that I have for you. Learning about ways that you can manage that illness herbally, If it ever comes to it, not throw away your meds and go on herbs, right? You know, there's been a lot done with cinnamon with diabetes. Um, that doesn't mean throw away your insulin and start taking cinnamon capsules, but knowing what to do. Um, and there are things that can be done, and this is all situational to illness, and I do not give medical advice. But when I asked Joe, uh, Dr. Dr. Bones, this question, how would I keep a diabetic alive in a collapsed society, And he said, basically, what you have to do is hopefully they'll eventually get things back together. And during that time, you're going to starve them. You're going to feed them about six to 800 calories a day of things that, that you know, have very low uh, insulin and blood sugar responses. And you're going to, to, to do everything you can to keep them alive. And, but there's nothing else other than that you really can do. And then, yeah, there is some supplementation you can do with some things like cinnamon all that help to moderate blood sugar. But, um, man, it's, it's just there are some things that I can't fix. 
And I, I really think that it's important for people in that scenario or that have someone in that scenario that they love to think about what areas of the country, if there is major upheaval, economic collapse and things like that, uh, make the most sense for you to live in, where there's the most potential long-term stability, and it's not the center of a big city. It just isn't. Um, but I am going to move on from there because now we have to move into the boring one, economics. What do we do economically about our future? And the first word I want you to write under economics is debt, question mark. And write down after debt and question mark how much money you think you owe right now off the top of your head on everything that you owe money on, student loans, credit card bills, anything that you have a debt on. Uh, this is not your electric bill. It's not your budget, right? Your electric bill is not a debt. Unless you are behind to the electric company, then you can include it. Just write it down. I want you to be very honest with yourself tonight, and I want you to go and find out what the number really is. And I want you to write it next to the number you thought it was. If there's a significant difference in those two numbers, it's going to make an impact on you, one that I think you need to have. I also want you to write down another number. What is all the debt that you have, car, car debt, everything, minus any home debt? If you have a mortgage, I want a second number that takes the mortgage out. So if you owe $200,000 on your house, I want you to take it out and put down the remaining number. That's the more important number to me. I'm okay with debt on a home. I also want you to put down the following two words on your piece of paper underneath economics uh, and underneath like subheadings underneath debt. I want you to put down house or real estate or however you want to define that. And I want you to write next to it, okay, question mark. And then I want you to write down car. And I want you to write down, okay, question mark, question mark, question mark. Okay. Here's why. These are the only two assets that I am comfortable with a person purchasing and using debt as a leverage tool to do so. On a house, it's got one question mark. Because the question is, can we afford this and could we still afford this for six months If one of us lost our job, including if only one of us works, if that person lost their job, if the answer to that question is yes, there's almost no reason not to buy a house using debt as a leverage tool. As long as the house is fairly priced and it's, you know, you're not buying out of your, 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 you know, where you should be. And can you afford it? You have to be honest about this. This doesn't mean, will they approve me for this amount of money? Or can we get by at this amount of money? Like, can I afford this means like at the end of the month, will I still have a significant amount of money to do everything else in my life beyond my basic needs? The answer is no, you need to buy a cheaper house. But that's the question around house. And, With interest rates as low as they are, I almost can't advise a person to pay cash for a house. I'd rather have the cash sitting in the bank because the interest rate on the house is now at such a point that real inflation, not the lied about inflation number, is greater than the interest rate. It almost doesn't make sense to not use somebody else's money until you get to a certain point where you go, you know what, we can just make this go away and we can do it fast. We can pound this out in three to five years If you can get a house paid off in three to five years and you're not putting yourself out and you're still saving money and building up your life at the same time, then it's time to turn on that fire. And that usually involves divesting yourself of all the other debts first. Car debt had three questions. Because I have a lot of concerns when you get into car debt. Number one, do I, do, is this, is this level of vehicle what I really need? If it's beyond what you need, 
then understand you're financing the need portion and you're financing the luxury portion. So if it's a $50,000 car and you need a $30,000 car, you're doing $30,000 worth of financing because you need it and $20,000 worth of financing because you want it. And I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying if you think about it that way, you may find yourself buying a $30,000 car or coming up with a $20,000 down payment. Or coming up with a $20,000 down payment, thinking about it and going, yeah, I don't really want that $20,000 worth of luxury in that car. Okay. Do you need a new car? Some people do. I used to drive 55 miles a day each way, so 110 miles a day round trip every day on multiple interstate highways. There is no way I was buying an old used car for that. There's no way in hell. Um, you know, we had enough income, it made sense, and we paid the car off on a five-year note in two and a half years. Okay. This is the way I want you to think about cars. I can't tell you what you should buy, what you shouldn't buy. Don't email me and say, you know, I'm not Ed Wallace. Those of you from the Dallas market probably know who he is, right? The, you know, should I buy the Toyota 4Runner or the, you know, Nissan? What I don't, I don't know. I, I'm more worried about all cars are decent. All cars have problems. You know, what's the maintenance cost going to be? What do you really need? And what do you need to get by? And then I want you to write down after house and car, And I want you to write down everything else. Okay? Then I want you to put a dash. And I want you to write this in all capital letters. Never again! Exclamation point. And then underline it. And I don't want you to look at that. And if you feel any trepidation or fear that you've put that out there. Or you feel that that way, some way hurts you or hinders you. And I just want to whip out my MasterCard and, and do this thing. And how will I survive? I want you to take it from a fear to a cry of triumph. Like a battle cry. Never again. Never again will I add a link to my chain voluntarily. Never again will I give myself financial cancer and, and metastasize it further voluntarily. Never again will I be a slave to society. Never again. Never the hell again. And if you are the kind of person that would use it, stick the F word in there. And feel good about it. Because everything else you've ever financed with debt was a damn lie. Whatever you paid for it was more than you should have paid for it. Whatever it cost you, it cost you in years. It cost you in months, days, and years, not dollars. As you start to do a plan to get out of debt, if you're thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars into debt or more, and when you write your plan to get out of debt that I'm going to tell you how to do in just a second, and you go, that's going to take three years, it's three years of your life that they took from you by selling you on a dream of bullshit, and you bought it hook, line, and sinker. And now it's time to grow up, man up, woman up, and get rid of it and make the sacrifice, and at the end of it, You'll never do it again. You'll never do it again. No one will ever trick you into doing it again. It'll never happen again. You'll never consider doing it again. All the airline miles and points and crap won't matter. It won't matter. And you will breathe the freest air you've ever breathed as a human being in your life. I've had people come up to me at events say, thank you, you changed my life, and then hug me and cry. 
because the biggest thing they did was get their families out of debt and get their freedom back. I had one lady that was in her 60s that lost her job through an illness and an injury and was on very low-paying disability. And she had been making a great salary until this, this, this personal disaster hit her life. And she was in tons of debt when she started listening to this show. Tons of debt. Government job. Never lose your job. It's safe. It's secure. Then this illness hit her. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, she can't work anymore. But for three years, between myself and a guy named Dave Ramsey, who's really your guy for the mechanics of how to do this, write down Dave Ramsey under there. Yeah, Dave Ramsey put debt snowball. Look it up and do what it says. Done. Okay? And then put ignore Dave's advice on investing. We'll talk about investing in the future. Okay? And then put a question mark after that. Because you can do some investing Dave Ramsey style and you need other investments to go with it. And many of the things he'll tell you not to invest in are the exact things you need to invest in. When it comes to debt elimination, Dave's the guy. I'm not even going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to get, you know what? If you want this bad enough, go look up Dave Ramsey debt snowball, follow that path, and you will be out of debt. He'll disagree with me about cars. And if you want to follow his advice there, go ahead. You want to never finance a car again? Great. I'm not even saying I'm going to do it. I'm just saying you can. Right? If it meets certain criteria. Okay? Houses, we agree on Dave and I. But, so anyway, back, back to this, this lady. She had had this event in her life, um, this, this illness that had taken her off of this high end income, um, and, and put her on disability of like a couple thousand dollars a month. But in three years, she had paid off all her debt and had paid down her house considerably, was able to sell her home, uh, cash in a great deal of equity, get out of the city, I believe she was from Chicago, moved to a much more affordable place, and she was living a wonderful life that she considered basically an early retirement. And uh, she was just overwhelmed. She was like, if I hadn't found this and I hadn't started doing this then, I would be living at the absolute cusp of bankruptcy and eventually go through that and I'd have nothing. I'd be living in, you know, some government housing or something like that. Like the type of people I used to look down with pity on uh, that were, you know, part of why I had a job. It could happen to anybody at any point in life. You can have a disaster and financial disasters are the most common. That's why this is so important that you take control of the financial aspects of your life. There's so many people in the preparedness industry, the, the survival world, that think, well, oh, the whole world's going to end as we know it anyway, and screw it, you might as well have a bunch of debt, and then when it collapses, who are, who's going to come collect it anyway? When the dollar's devalued to nothing, and you can get a sack of potatoes for a wheelbarrow full of, uh, of uh, money, I'll just sell somebody a sack of potatoes and pay the bank off. I don't want to worry about it. It'll be, it's not going to work like that. It never has, not once. It's never worked out for anybody like that. All the dreams of, you know, just buy silver and then you'll be a millionaire. It's all crap. It could happen. Don't bet on it. You could might win if you buy a lottery ticket, too. I do think, though, once we get ourselves out of debt and we come up with a plan for our, our finances and we do the budgeting and, and debt elimination with the debt snowball the way Dave Ramsey teaches, we start paying cash for everything, we'll have this surplus money. We can invest that into other things now. That's good. 
And I, I think once that's done, though, we do need to broaden our horizons on what investing really is. One thing I recommend you invest in, and this is something Dave completely disagrees with me on because he's wrong, seriously, um, is gold and or silver. And I, I actually prefer silver as an investment. I won't go into the technical mechanics and analysis as, as, as to why. But I recommend that, you know, I don't care if you go out down to find a local coin shop dealer. You can buy silver eagles from for 24 bucks right now or something like that and buy one a month. Fine, whatever. If that's what you can afford, do it. Uh, maybe once you get a little bit further along, maybe you can buy four or five a month or buy some from my store if you want to online or buy some from my sponsor, Jam Bullion. I, I don't really care where you get it. I just want it to be part of your portfolio and stored safely in security somewhere where you can put your hands on it. Do not, do not, if you want to buy an ETF, an exchange traded fund in silver or gold and allocate some of your retirement savings or something like that into that world, fine. Just do not consider it silver or gold. Consider it a paper asset because that's what it is. Unless you can take your hands and put it on the metal, you don't own it. So I want that to be, and I generally recommend that over over time, slowly, with, with some cost averaging, you end up with about 5% to 10% of your total net worth, which is more than a lot of times people seem to think it is because it's not just your total cash. If you have a $200,000 home, And it's paid off. So you have $200,000 of equity in a home. That's $200,000 of asset as far as I'm concerned. You have a $200,000 mortgage. You have a $200,000 liability. You have no equity. You have no asset. But let's say once the house is paid off, then if you had 5% of that in silver, that would be $10,000 in silver. So this is that's a long-term plan before anybody gets too excited. But that's where I recommend you be. Silver and gold are insurance for your wealth. And the reason I do it by percentage is a person says, well, I have $100 worth of uh, silver and $1,000 worth of cash. You're probably okay because you're only, you only got $1,000 to insure. And you need the cash now, and you're going to need it in the foreseeable future. So it's a hedge, not just on inflation, but on the, the destruction of currency, which your government is hell-bent for leather to accomplish. If you have any doubts about this, all I need you to do is go to a site called usdebtclock.org. And I'll put a link in today's show notes. Just watch it for a while. And you'll understand that your government is hell-bent on the destruction of its own currency. And they'll come up with a new currency once they've fully destroyed it. And we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. But one thing we can do is buy an asset that's never been worth nothing in the entire history of civilization. And that would be silver and gold, your two easiest ones. Silver's more accessible. Smaller pieces, easier to barter with, more affordable, and I believe more undervalued. So that's why I recommend it without getting into the technicals. Now, on your on your book, I also want you to write down what is an asset, question mark, what is an investment, question mark. What is an asset? What is an investment? To start better planning your financial future, you're going to have to start thinking differently about this. Um. To me, a solar system, now again, these are long-term things here. This isn't the quick, easy stuff that we talked about yesterday. But a solar energy system that produces $100 a month in electricity for me. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that's all the energy I need or even want. I'm just saying that's the net output, $100 in value. right? So if I have a solar, huge solar system, it produces me what I would pay $100 in electricity for. If I can buy that system for $20,000 and it's going to do that for me for 25 years or more, like new systems will, 
That's like putting $20,000 into an annuity and getting a check mailed to me for $100 a month. You see how that works? And when I compare buying that solar system to buying an annuity or investing in a stock, I want to know, will I get $100 a month out of this? No, the solar system is a better investment. Because not only will it do that, not only will it do that, it will also provide electricity for me if the grid fails, if I buy the right system. And you're moving into an area that requires a lot of education here. I've, I've had people email me. Uh, I bought a $30,000 solar array that's grid-tied, and I was thinking I was going to be able to go off-grid if the power failed, but the power went off the other day, and I didn't have any electricity at all. Now I called the people up I bought the system from, and they're like, oh, yeah, you need a battery bank and an inverter, and you need like another $10,000 worth of investment to go with that system to allow it to be grid-tied and battery backup. And they're mad. They never asked the question before they spent $30,000, though. So now on that same book, Underneath Finance and Economics, I want you to write another phrase for me. And I want you to write it down exactly the way I'm going to give it to you, even if you don't use these words yourself generally, or one word in it yourself generally, because we call it an adult word or a four-letter word. But I want you to write it down this way because I want it to go inside you and I want you to feel it. No one gives a shit as much as I do about my financial future. No one gives a shit as much as I do about my financial future. Yesterday, if you're new to the show, you might have heard me use a phrase that I use a lot, and people who listen to the show are very familiar with it. It's called financial liar. And I call the majority, not all, before I get hate mail, the majority of financial advisors out there, specifically people that work for companies like American Express and Edward Jones and all, people that got their job because the company advertised in the newspaper, become a financial advisor, we support you while you take your Series 6 and Series 7 exam, blah, 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 right? That crap, okay? I call them financial liars because they are financial liars. Because they tell you things that aren't true. They tell you things like, When we invest in this fund, the manager of this fund treats your money like it would be his own. And he really investigates the companies and makes the best decision he can based on the facts. It moves money and changes the investment in whatever way is best. Lies! 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 Let me tell you why it's a lie. Let's say you said to me, Jack, I want you to manage this mutual fund. I'd be like, no, you don't. But you said, yeah, you do. And I'd be like, well... Okay, fine. You got a gun to my head, I'll do it. Uh, I want a million dollars a year to manage this fund. And the, the guy says, yeah, I'll give it to you. I'll be like, well, I can do that for a year. And I would. I'd be like, okay, yeah, I get the money in advance? Okay, great. And I would do my best. I would do my best. But let's say that this, the, 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 the fund that you gave me to manage was a mid-cap fund, mid-sized stocks. Okay? Now, there's actually a list of every stock that's available on the exchanges that this this mutual fund will say, we buy from the following exchanges, the NASDAQ and the, the Dow, right? And maybe maybe one foreign exchange fund or something like that, right? Uh, but it'll say, this is the places we buy our investments from. And only certain stocks would be a mid-cap fund from those exchanges, all right? So I have that list. 
And then I'll have certain parameters that we've put out as to how that fund is, such as 95% of the, the, this fund, which would be actually low, usually it's more like 99, will always be in securities, and no more than 5% will be in a cash reserve status. Okay. So now financial crisis is coming, like the one we had in 2008-2009. This is what I'm these people are liars, because they don't tell you what I'm telling you right now. This is the God's honest truth. I dare anybody to prove me wrong about what I'm about to tell you. So now I'm sitting here and I'm managing Jack's mutual mid-cap fund that you pay me a million dollars a year to manage. And I want to manage it like it's my own money. And it's 2008, July. Anybody that listened to the show back then can tell you what I was saying. Get your money out of the stock market. Take a walk for a few months. It's going to be okay in the end, but get out of the way. There's a freight train coming. Your investment portfolio will be worth 30% to 40% of what it's going to be worth Uh, what it's worth right now within a few months. This is going to happen. I know this is going to happen. This is obvious. It's telegraphed. Get your money out of the market. Screaming it. So you would think that since you've paid me a million dollars a year to manage that fund, I would take at least some portion of that fund and put it into cash or put it into bonds or put it into any other group of assets that are going to take it in the face less than mid-cap stocks. Guess what I have to do? I have to sit there and take the punch in the face for you. I can't move it out. I can pick different mid-cap stocks. I can try to find the ones that will best manage this crisis. But in the end, all the ships went down. Everything sunk for a while, remember? Remember the Dow at like 6,800 or something like that by February 2009? Gee, like this crazy redneck knew what he was talking about or something? That's why your, your, your 401k, that's why these investments that, that you were told these things went down so low. Because the guy can't move the money. He's got to stay invested in the class of asset the fund represents. The people that advise you in this financial advisor community, this industry, that advise people with net worth under $2 million, really, there's no need for them to know anything about economics or finance at all. A lot of them do, but there's no need. Because they don't, they don't decide shit. They take a profile of you, a risk tolerance assessment, and sometimes they submit a portfolio, but generally the company itself provides them with the recommendations and they tell you to, I mean, you could, you could bypass them with a computer program. But their function is to talk to you once a year to make you feel good about what's happening, whether it's good or bad, to maybe play golf with you if you're a bigger client. They're relationship salespeople. So I want you to go back to the line that I just had you write. No one gives a shit about your financial future as much as you do. That guy doesn't really care about your financial future. He cares about his financial future. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I'm just saying, if he could push button A or B, and if he pushes button A, you go bankrupt and he doesn't, and he can push button B, he goes bankrupt and you don't, he's going to push button A. I'm not even saying he shouldn't do it. I know if it's between, like, if you said, Jack, right now you push this button and uh, this guy over here in uh, Sheboyganville goes bankrupt and, and you don't, or you push the other button and you go bankrupt and he doesn't, by the way, there's a 45 cocked and locked in the back of your medulla oblongata right now, and if you don't push one of them buttons, I'm going to be. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm sorry, dude. Good luck. Why? Because I've worked hard for what I have, and it's important to me. And it's more important to me than what Tom in Sheboyganville has. That's not that I don't care about Tom in Sheboyganville. If I didn't have a heart of a teacher, I wouldn't do this show every day. 
Why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because most Americans, remember I talked about performing an MI stupid audit with your security around your home and your, yourself, your person, your family? You need to perform an MI being stupid audit on yourself about your finances and economics. If you have a financial advisor who tells you, you're well diversified, and you say, what do you mean? He goes, well, we have 10% in stocks and bonds, which is good for your age, because you don't need that much of that. That's just a little bit of security that we've put in place. You have 30% mid-cap stocks. You have 20% growth in income stocks. And we have the balance in long-term proven dividend producers because that way we have a nice balanced portfolio and we've mitigated your risk by spreading out your investments based on your age. And we'll make adjustments to that over time. As you near retirement, we'll move more of your assets into a fixed income category to preserve the wealth that you've gained in the interim. You know what he's saying? Blah, 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 blah. Because let me tell you what he just said for real. 100% of your money is invested in paperback securities that are 100% tied to the U.S. denominated dollar. And if the economy shits the bed, you're going to be penniless. That's what he just said to you. Sounds better when you say it the first way, doesn't it? It doesn't change what it means. It's not allocated. So what I'm going to tell you, first of all, is you need to begin an education process for yourself. Pick one word, one financial word a day, and learn the definition of it. Fiscal. Put that one with something that, you know, like politicians talk about all the time and, and, and never actually follow through on. Fiscal responsibility. What does that mean? How about fiduciary responsibility? How about dividend? How about asset? How about liability? Just get a whole shit ton list of financial terms. Write down on your list. Get list of financial terms. Learn one a day. Just learn what they mean. Prove your vocabulary. Good thing to do anyway, learn a new word every day. But for a while, learn words about money. It's the subject that most Americans are the most ignorant on. I recommend that you read a free book from me. It's called The Real Truth About Money. I want you to understand that I'm going to lay out in that book a way that your nation can create a currency that's completely fiat which is what they say our currency is and isn't. And I explain exactly how it could work. I'm not saying we should do it. The book was written so that people would understand monetary creation. There's a blog that I haven't posted in forever called trtam.com, which stands for The Real Truth About Money. It's got a bunch of articles on monetary creation. Those are great places to educate yourself about money. So I want you to educate yourself about finance, economics, money, and I want you to understand investments. And I don't want you to ever buy a stock or a mutual fund again unless you understand the investment and why you're making it. Because the financial liar said is what I should do is not the right answer. I'm investing in this company because they've historically paid out this type of a dividend. This is their, this is their forward-looking statements where they're at right now. This is the trend of the industry that they're in. And I'm going to watch that. If any of these things changes... Uh, then I might consider removing my investment from that. That makes a hell of a lot more sense. That's your basic financial investments. But now remember those other two questions. What is an investment? What is an asset? And we talked about a solar array that produces $100 worth of electricity a month. Okay. Sounds like a good investment. Is it? Don't know. Depends on what, other, what you could do with that money. Um, but it would take you about 16.6 months or 16.6 years to get $20,000 out of that system and get 100% return of investment if it's a $20,000 system. So you have to ask yourself, is it just a pure financial play? Because if it is, then maybe maybe it's not the investment you thought it was. But I'll tell you what, it would compare quite well to most lifetime annuity investments. 
And with a 25-year life out of a system, you've got another 10 years easy on there. And a lot of these systems, they say, have a 25-year lifespan. These solar systems have a much longer lifespan because people take them down and other people put them back in at other homes, and they don't get the same efficiencies, but they get a lot of utility out of them. And they're building them better than they ever have at any time in history at this point as far as longevity. So it's more than just that. So we have to start looking at what's the other side of the investment. What does it do for me in good times or bad? So when I look at an investment, when I buy power tools, if I want to be cheap, I'll go out and buy the stuff from Harbor Freight. And, you know, they're not bad backup tools. But when I want to buy something that I'm going to have for a long time, I'm buying a DeWalt or a Porter Cable. Right? I mean, I'm, you know, or a Makita. I'm buying high-end, top-end tools because I know that with a little bit of solar and an inverter, that those DeWalt tools, I can throw those 18-volt uh, volt batteries in there, and they're going to run. You know, I'm, I'm right now, I'm at a point where is it time to upgrade. DeWalt now has these lithium-ion um, tools. Same great tools they've always been, but new batteries. And I have all these tools that already take the old batteries, and the old batteries are just as expensive as the new batteries, and... You know, do I make the do I make the decision how to upgrade? Do I maybe uh, you know how long do those old batteries last? Are they worth keeping as a backup tool, or do I go out and sell them and use that? You know, and I've got to make that decision. But I'm looking at that as an investment. Grids down, I can still build something. You know, I've got a little bit of backup power. I've got a generator. I can still run a nail gun, an air compressor. Some of you guys don't aren't those handy types, and you don't have tools and all. It doesn't matter. It could be anything. You have to start thinking about value over price. Okay? Value over price works this way. One place Americans usually spend the least amount of money they possibly can, and is the worst place to do it, is the humble garden hose. If you've ever bought a cheap garden hose, you probably regretted it as soon as you unrolled it. And they always fail, break, kink, spring a leak at the worst possible times. Then you got to go buy another one. So you buy a little bit better one. It's a little less annoying, it lasts a little bit longer, but it still fails. And it always, again, fails when you don't want it to. So what I do is buy the best damn hose I can get, because it costs more and it's worth it. And I keep fitting so that if I do have to, because if something goes wrong with a good garden hose, it's always right around the fitting. So if you can cut the fitting off, put a clamp on it, and fix it, that's better than having it fail in the middle. And even if it does fail in the middle, if it's a good hose, it's probably worth splicing back together. It'll probably last another five, ten years even if a good hose is well cared for, right? you got to start thinking about everything in your life that way. If you buy something that's going to last more than a couple months, try to make sure that it lasts more than a couple years. I also have a little exercise you can do that will just vastly improve your financial future starting right now. Um, we don't always do this anymore. We sure did when we were getting started, Dorothy and I, and we were struggling to get started and things like that. And the lifestyle we have today is in large part because we lived this way back then. And when we did decide to get serious to get rid of debt, there was only so much of it and we were able to do it. And, and then we've become successful in life. But we still do it to a degree. I have a minimum wait period exercise for you of seven days. And it would work like this. long time ago, Dorothy and I wanted to buy this chair for our living room. It was like 600 bucks. Today, unless, you know, I bought two or three other things this month that are big expenditures, if I want something for 600 bucks in any given month, I can have it. 
uh, gotten our lives. And you know what? Nobody out there should feel like I'm bragging or not, nobody should feel like, oh, well, screw him. You should understand I'm, what I'm telling you works because we can do that. So if I wanted to buy a $600 chair today, I could just buy it. Back then, not so much, but we could have done it. And, of course, we can do zero interest, zero payments for 24 months. We're like, no, we're not interested in that. We looked at the chair. We measured the chair. We thought about where we'd go in our living room. We thought, this is really the chair for us. And then we left, and we didn't buy it. And if we didn't feel seven days later like it was still the right choice, the right decision, and the right price and everything else, then we wouldn't have bought it. We did buy that chair. I think we looked at it four or five times, though, back then before we bought it. I think it was more like a 30-day wait. And we finally decided, yeah, this is... And it wasn't paralysis analysis. It was, do we really want to spend this money? Do we really need our assets to be comfortable at this price? And eventually we decided, we don't need it, but we want it and we're willing to buy it. If you'll make that a policy, that anything over a certain dollar figure, right? And that dollar figure will vary. For some people, it's 50 bucks. For some people, it's 25 bucks. For some people, it's $100. But based on your lifestyle and your income level and your place in life, that anything that you consider a significant portion, I'm sorry, a significant purchase, you'll simply say, I want this. I'm going to write down, I want the chair. Chair price, $652. Delivery charge, $25. Scratch, do it myself. I want to buy, check mark. And then just say, okay. And this is Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Do I pick up the pay? Do I still want the chair? No. Don't buy it. Yes. Go buy it. That simple. You'll cut your annual spending dramatically, and you'll never feel like you sacrificed a thing. You'll actually feel like you've gained. You'll have more of what you do want, less of what you don't want. It's it's really that simple. I know that today's show didn't get into a lot of stuff the way that yesterday's show did, These are the more ethereal things that require a lot more of lifestyle decision and choice, and they have a lot more long planning horizon. Financial planning is something you should begin when you're in high school and finish when they bury you in the ground or put you in the, the crematorium or whatever. I mean, honestly, financial planning and financial management of your assets is something you should be doing from almost cradle to grave. Because what did I tell you today? No one gives a shit about your financial future as much as you do. Now I want you to write one more thing as we close today. Or I'm going to ask you to use that word again, even if you generally don't. You can put down a different word if you insist, but I'd, I'd like you to use it because I think it's even more important now than it was the first time I had you do it. No one gives a shit about you, your family, your safety, your security, and your future as much as you do. No one. I wish you'd write that down for me. If you have to rewind it a couple times and do it, I want you to write it down. I want you to read it to yourself. No one, if you're a man and you're married, no one cares about your wife as much as you. If you're a woman and you're married, no one cares about your husband as much as you. If you have children together, nobody cares about them as much as you do. It does, it's not that it mean that nobody cares about them. It doesn't mean that somebody doesn't care about them a great deal. No one cares about them as much as you do. If they're hungry because there's no food, it doesn't hurt anybody as badly as it will hurt you. It'll hurt you more than it hurts them to go hungry for a day, to watch them do it. If they're sick, 
and in a hospital for some sort of treatment, and you can't be there because you have to work just so that you can afford to have them there, no one's going to hurt about that as much as you will. If a tree falls through the roof of your house and lands on a family member, no one cares about getting it off them as much as you do. No one cares as much that your children eat good food and drink clean water as much as you do. No one cares as much about that as you do. No one. Why is that so important? Because I'll tell you, certainly doesn't. There's no politician that does. FEMA doesn't. The wonderful first responders, fire, firefighters, paramedics, law enforcement officers that will lay down their lives to save yours still don't care about you as much as you do. You put them in a position where that police officer says, I can report to duty and do my job or stay home and protect my children, and I legitimately feel there is a risk of their safety without me here, you are going without, his children will have his protection, as they should. As they should. You have a paramedic that's more worried about keeping his, his mother or his child alive than he is about whether or not you get an answer to 911. He's not coming. You're cold because the power went out in the winter and you want that lineman to get up there and turn that electricity back on? He'll show up and do it. He'll come down from that dangerous job with icicles on his beard and he'll get it done. But only when he can safely get up there and only when he knows that his family will be protected and looked after before he'll report for duty. Sobering? True. Major disaster, like a Katrina or a Sandy. Let me tell you what happens. First responders get there. Somebody ends up being in charge of everybody. We'll call that an incident commander. That incident commander will generally spend about a day before help goes anywhere. Living by a credo. Dead rescuers save no lives. They will assemble, they will coordinate, they will prioritize, and then and only then will they begin responding. And if your priority is a three, everybody that's a one and a two comes before you. No one cares about you as much as you do. These people that are, you know, no one came for seven days. Of course they didn't. They care about themselves more than you. The problem in many instances is the person that's in a bad way didn't care enough about themselves before there was a problem to be prepared for after there was a problem. These things that we teach are not just for the end of the world. They're for the end of your world as you know it, and that happens to somebody every single day of the, of our lives. Every day that the world makes a rotation, somebody somewhere has their world ended as they know it. Not necessarily dead, but a house burns down, a thief breaks in, a job is lost, an entire economy implodes, and it's a lot of someones. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's a lot. No one gives a shit as much as you. So if you won't take the steps necessary to ensure your future, why would you ever expect anybody else to? If you won't pay attention to your finances, why do you expect your financial liar to? 
If you won't pay attention to the food that goes in your body, why do you expect a dietitian at your children's school to really pay attention to the quality of the food that goes into theirs? If you won't pay attention to the education your children receive and make sure they're getting the facts and the truth versus the political ideology of whoever's in charge at the time, you don't care enough to do that. Why would they? If you don't care enough to make sure there's some extra food in your house, why do you think anybody's really going to care enough to make sure there's some extra food for you if you need it? Why, if you don't care enough to make sure that you just take a bunch of free soda bottles and fill them up with water, do you? why would you think that anybody would care enough to bring you water when something mundane happens like there's a drought and the ground gets really dry and a water main breaks and the water's not safe to drink? If you don't care enough to do it, why would you expect that anybody else would? And then, again, look at what you wrote down, hopefully. No one gives a shit about your safety and security and your future and that of your family more than you do. No one cares more than you. How much do you care? A lot of you have listened to this because a friend gave it to you and said, hey, this guy makes sense. And you probably thought a lot of times this guy does make sense. And there's probably some times along the way you go, that's not really for me. I want you to shelve all that for a minute. Put any kind of prejudice or ego aside. And I just want you to ask yourself a question. What would you be willing to pay if you were in a situation where no one was coming to help you, Your, your family was out of food. Your family was out of water. You had no electricity. And there were people out there that would do you harm and you had no means of defense. And somebody walked up to your door and knocked on it and you answered the door and they said, I have a pickup truck full of food. I've got another pickup truck full of water. I've got some guns here. I'll stay here and I'll show you how to use them. By the way, I'm going to do this for your neighbors too so that they can help you defend yourself from these people that are out here. I've got some medicine, and I've got some tools. I've got a generator and 60 gallons of gasoline for you. You can have it all. You're hungry, you're tired, you're sick, you're cold, and no one's coming. What would you pay for that at that point? Especially when you look at your children and think tonight they're going to go hungry again. Whatever your number is, it pales in comparison to the number you'd have to pay to do it in advance for yourself. It's a fraction. What you can do that for now, for yourself, it's a few thousand dollars. Spread out over a year or two if it takes that long. And no one cares more than you do. Do you care enough to act? I hope so. It's why I've dedicated my entire life to helping people get as far as we've talked about in these two episodes and a lot further down the road. Because I believe, I believe that you're worth it. I believe that your family's worth it. And I'll be honest with you, I don't care about you as much as I care about my family. I don't. But I care an awful lot. And I hope what I've told you today is true. I hope that you care more than I do. I really do, because I care an awful lot, an awful lot. So step up, and like I said, become the adult that all of us should be. All of these things should be things that every American able-bodied adult, an able-minded adult should be doing anyway. 
step up and do it. Because all I can do is show you the way. I can't do it for you. There's no way I could ever do it for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.